and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Joja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by Dalva Rohat with the American Enterprise Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, we are very happy and privileged to be joined by former Minister um, of Foreign Affairs, uh, Andrei Kozirev of the Russian Federation and Soviet Union. You were both. Thank you so much for um, being with us today. I'm proposing to start this off in the current times and looking into the future with a question that I'm sure it's not the first time um, that you're being asked, but I believe it's on very many people's uh, minds on both sides of the Atlantic. And I heard this very often over the last few weeks from both Ukrainians and Russians. And that is the logic or the kind of the presumption that Putin is waiting for U.S. elections and is waiting for Trump to come back. um, And that would, from his point of view, fix the outcome um, or or get to the outcome that he wants to achieve um, in the war in Ukraine. What's your take on this? Do you think that's what he's hoping for? Yes, I, I agree. He definitely does. Uh, But he actually likes the war of attrition anyway. I mean, that's his bet on Trump, definitely. They liked Trump from the very beginning, uh, but and probably helped him from the very beginning one way or the other. Anyway, Putin is uh, quite comfortable with this long war. So Trump or not, but uh, he bets on long war and on the West uh, becoming tired or uh, the, the war, uh, feeling the war fatigue and uh, the Republican rebellion, so to say, now is a signal of that. Uh, but he also probably thinks that uh, sooner or later, under the circumstances, uh, the will of Ukraine uh, will uh, kind of weaken because you know it's it's an unbelievable situation. It's a, it's a one side destruction. Uh, Russians, uh, Putin is able to bomb Ukrainian cities, Ukrainian infrastructure, Ukrainian population, whatever you know. And he sits in a uh, sanctuary and gets nothing back. So why wouldn't want he um, kind of bet on time? on Trump and on time. Earlier in the war, um, after the Russian failure to capture Kiev, you you called uh, Putin delusional and a lunatic acting out of desperation. At the same time, when you look at the Kremlin's pursuit of the war, it strikes me that Putin has actually been quite cautious and prudent in the way he approached the war, both domestically. I mean, he seems to understand that there are costs to these different waves of, of mobilization in political terms, and also very cautious in you know, not escalating and trying to bring NATO into the conflict, seemingly because he might understand that 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 he would stand no chance in a in a in a in a conventional war against against the alliance. So, what is the right way of understanding Putin's behavior? I mean, is it is it lunacy? Is it prudence? 
Is it, you know, prudence fueled by ideology that, that he seems to sort of subscribe to? What's the sort of mental model we are working here with? It's probably all at once. Uh, they, those things are not either one or they are end rather. But yes, it's lunacy because he started the war and his whole reign, so to say, in, in Russia is a lunacy. It's totally against Russian national interests. That's number one. Then it was adventure, uh, the war, the, the, the invasion, um, large invasion of Ukraine. And uh, he definitely miscalculated. And uh, he thought that the Ukrainians uh, are weak nation, that there is no nation even like Ukraine, and that they will crumble uh, under a first push, so to say. And he wanted to be in Kiev, uh, as people say, in three days or something. Uh, so that was complete miscalculation. A second miscalculation was that he thought that the West will not resist uh, almost like the, the previous time in uh, in 2014 when he occupied Crimea. Uh, so uh, these two were miscalculations, but uh, when I say that Putin is a lunatic or, or, or a crazy, that the whole thing is crazy, uh, that's from our point of view, probably yours, mine, from anyone who observes it um, from the outside. And again, it's totally against Russian national interests. But he is not crazy in medical sense. He is quite a rational guy, not reasonable, but rational guy. If my English is not failing me, uh, you know, there is a difference. So he's rational, yes, and he calculative, he cal calculates his moves, and that's why he will not start the nuclear war. That's just a blackmail, you know, and it's a pity that uh, the United States and most Western countries seem to be a kind of uh, afraid of his uh, nuclear threats, but he is evil, but not suicidal. He doesn't want uh, to uh, commit a nuclear suicide, and he does not wage the war in a way that would be suicidal for him, even on, in conventional. So that's why he avoids and will try to avoid by all means uh, any military uh, engagement with NATO. And that's why I think uh, that if the West, uh, the NATO, uh, gave Ukraine uh, the most sophisticated and most powerful weapons, and the Ukraine then would be able very quickly, though, uh, though to throw the Russian uh, invaders back over the border, the internationally recognized border. He will not do anything particularly crazy. You know, he will not press the nuclear button or he will not go to war with, with NATO or anything like that. He will just present it like a great victory to Russian people. He has total propaganda, total uh, control of the media. And, uh, and that's it. So. <laughs> uh, the answer, the question which you ask is 
uh, I think the core question, whether Putin is suicidal, no. Whether Putin is completely irrational, no, he is rational. Is he mean? Is he lunatic in, in a sense of sound-minded people? Of course. So not none of these things is uh, controversial. They all go together. You already um, touched very early on, on the, of course, the core that I don't think we can get away from. And I want to pause here and just say one thing, apropos what you just explained, um, your uh, understanding um, of the nuclear scenario that we're talking about so much. I teach European security um, here in Washington and I have to talk about the nuclear aspect um, of, of um, this war, too, and the fear of escalation. And from all the um, articles and work that has been written on this, also on the Western side, um, I've decided the easiest to understand is your personal Twitter feed um, on that, uh, your um, your thread about um, uh, nuclear escalation. In, it, it is so clearly um, explained that I think is the best um, for, uh, for us to understand. But I want to take advantage of having you here uh, to ask you the on the other side, um, the other aspect, you've been now in the United States for quite a while and you're um, a sophisticated understander of our um, strategic culture and the way we're looking um, at um, at this conflict. And so explain to us from, from your point of view where fear of escalation is coming from. Um, it's something that we certainly have tried to discuss a lot um, on this podcast with different guests and among ourselves. And we all have our opinions on this, um, but it's been the discussion about self-deterrence um, in the West when it comes to support for Ukraine has been essentially driven by fear of escalation. So how do you make sense of this? Well, you are quite right. I'm living for a long time in the United States, and and uh, by all means, I will stay here. Uh, and I am taxpayer, uh, so uh, any penny spent on this war for me is as important as uh, to those guys in Congress, uh, the, the the especially the Republicans who are against helping Ukraine. Uh, they think that they could spare uh, uh, or econ economize on that, but it's not. Uh, it will be must, much more costly uh, down the road uh, to stay against Russian and Chinese because Chinese are learning from this experience. But the fear comes from very natural source. It's, it's, it's very uh, human, so to say, a reaction. It's nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are unbelievable, you know, that they could uh, destroy uh, the world. And definitely Russia, and I think now China too, are able to destroy the United States uh, as we speak, you know, in uh, 40 minutes from our conversation, if one of those guys presses the button, then uh, the missiles will take 40 minutes to deliver and there will be no conversation. So it is a very scary situation, but this 
So uh, there is fear. Do I fear? Of course. I, I tell you an anecdote. When uh, uh, we um, invented a new approach in 1993, when I was foreign minister, and we wanted uh, to be allies with the United States and all that, but you know, disarmament, actual disarmament, physical disarmament, dismantling of those um, missiles and all that, that takes uh, some time and effort. So uh, we uh, devised uh, a trick, like we said, we will not target anymore those uh, intercontinental missiles. We will not target them to the United States. And that was done as much as possible. And then uh, when I came to Washington to talk to uh, President Clinton, he said, Andre, what do you think is the most important change in, uh, say, Russian or Moscow to Washington relationship? And I said, uh, it's very easy. It's first time I don't feel threatened. I don't fear Russian nuclear warheads. See, I was foreign minister of Russia, and that was first time I came to the United States, not fearing to be killed in 40 minutes by Soviet or Russian and nuclear missiles. So that is very natural. Uh, the problem is to, like with any fear, there is always fear of something, and it's fearful to have a surgery, for instance, especially a, a complex surgery, but it's needed. So you have to rationalize, and that's where, uh, as I said, Putin is rational uh, personality, but the West kind of loses its rationality. It was a rational situation for more than I think it's for at least 70 years after the so-called New Age came. And uh, there is a new movie, a new film, uh, very good about this nuclear weapons and uh, the, 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 the horror of nuclear weapons. But they, are, they were needed at that time to defeat Japan and then to stand for, uh, against the Russian Federation. So that's a given that it's dangerous situation. It is dangerous situation. I can tell you that there is 100% guarantee, but uh, you have to live under this situation and take it rationally. And since Putin is not suicidal, the most important is to stay firm. The answer to this fear, like the answer to most of other fears, is to stay firm. That means that if America and uh, uh, NATO countries provide supplies of the most powerful conventional weapons to Ukraine and um, allow Ukraine to push uh, the, the Russian forces out, that would signal to Putin that the West is not fearful, that the West will not succumb to his uh, pressure. And that's important to deter nuclear aggression. What stops Soviet, stopped uh, Soviet Union for years and Russia and China from 
pressing the nuclear button and liquidating the United States at will any moment. The only thing, the retaliation, they know that automatically the American missiles will come back and they will be totally destroyed too. That's called MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. But that mutually assured destruction is assured not only by physical ability to do that by missiles, but it's assured by determination. So the most important in this game is to show the determination to strike back. Determination to strike back in Ukraine uh, by Ukrainians and by, by the implication determination to strike back if the missiles come. And one is after the other. You know, that's total a mistake to think that if you consent or if you if you give something in Ukraine, then you diminish the the, the uh, possibility of total and complete destruction. It's it's totally different. It's opposite situation. If you show weakness in one place, the other guy would uh, definitely think that you might show weakness in other places, right? But if you show if you show determination in one place, then he thinks, oh no, of course they will retaliate if I use nuclear weapons. Not necessarily all the missiles to to the United States at complete destruction. But they are playing with an idea of throwing a nuclear bomb, for instance, on, say, Brussels, which is capital of NATO or, or the center of the NATO. Why? Because, and that's where Ukraine is particularly important. If they could scare the United States out of using all its force to help you, Ukraine, that is in Europe, because Ukraine is the center of Europe geographically, then they might think, oh, why won't we go further? And again, the, 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 uh, the, the, the um, United States and other countries might, um, you know, might be fearful enough to swallow it. So that's the point. The point is not to give the other guy, the guy especially like Putin or like Xi, with due respect, uh, she is different, of course, but nevertheless, not to give those guys an impression that they can get away with anything or with something. No. And that was uh, the, uh, the deterrence, strategic deterrence used by NATO. That's why the NATO was created and used by the United States. And President Reagan actually was uh, 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 President Reagan actually epitomizes this approach. He came to uh, uh, Western Germany and said, Mr. Gorbachev, destroy, tear down this wall. Then when uh, Soviets um, deployed, I was then in the Russian, in the Soviet foreign ministry, I remember that. Uh, and again, the idea of deploying missiles in in Russia, but uh, those were missiles able to reach only Europe, not the United States. So see, that was the idea that let us detach the United States 
so-called nuclear umbrella from uh, the uh, Europe, and then will take Europe by c- conventional forces because uh, Americans will not use nuclear weapons against us. And uh, what was the answer of uh, President Reagan? That was the only one reasonable. He did not negotiate. He just said, if you don't remove immediately, if you don't uh, liquidate those um, so-called medium-range that is not reaching to the United States nuclear missiles, I will deploy my uh, missiles of the same range in Europe, in um, in Germany. And he did. And when he did, I was then a relatively high position in the Soviet foreign ministry, and I can testify that before he actually did deploy those weapons, it was just empty talk. There were discussions, there were negotiations, so-called disarmament negotiations, but Soviets were not serious in those negotiations because they thought that they can uh, scare Americans out of Europe. But when he started deployment of those weapons, then it was a sobering point for the Soviet leadership. And then the Soviet leadership told us, diplomats in the Soviet foreign ministry, hey, start to negotiate seriously with Americans. We don't need those uh, weapons uh, near our border. So that's the historic lesson, unfortunately, mostly forgotten. But that's how the deterrence, how peace was kept during the whole of the nuclear era. So I wonder if I if we could just probe you a little bit more to offer us more historical lessons, given the fact that it's not every day that we would have somebody on the podcast who was not only a first-hand witness to many of these critical events in, in, in Russian Central and Eastern European history, uh, but who was also a mover and shaker. In, 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 in those you published in 2019, a memoir of your time uh, as Russia's foreign minister. Uh, it's called Firebird, the Elusive Faith of Russia, Russian Democracy. And yeah. we'll include it in the show notes. We commended highly to, to, our, uh, to our listeners. Uh, so I suppose my, my, my question to you is, you know, what would you tell to those Americans and, and we have Julia and I, friends who are on the, of the realist persuasion, if you will, who who, who continue to cling to this narrative that uh, Russia's war against Ukraine is ultimately a result of a broken promise that supposedly Secretary Baker extended to Russia in the 1990s and then promising not to expand NATO to the east and NATO ended up expanding to the east, including countries that were once part of the Soviet Union, and that the prospect of Ukraine joining the ranks of those countries uh, was just intolerable for the Kremlin, and that you know a war of this kind would have taken place, you know, regardless of who was in the Kremlin, that it was just not an acceptable outcome given given the importance of Ukraine to 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 Russia. Where does this narrative go wrong? Cross the board. <laughs> it's everything is just malicious invention. Uh, First of all, uh, when I was foreign minister, 
I was accused of not demanding uh, the West to stick to the promise, which you mentioned made allegedly to Gorbachev. So being at, in power at that time, I ordered to look through all the archives, all the re, uh, pa papers around those um, dates, and that they are keep, kept there, you know, like, like every other uh, state. Uh, they are keeping the archives, and we found none of uh, a treaty, none of, of an agreement of, or anything. We found some um, phrases taken by a note taker. You know, when, when, when they speak, there is a note taker, especially um, uh, interpreters. I used to speak English with um, Baker. Um, he was great, great uh, teacher even for me as a, as a, as a uh, professional. Uh, so, uh, and there is a considerable difference in age also. So I enjoyed so much working with him. But anyway, there was a, a note taken uh, around uh, on both sides. And um, in the notes, there is a little hint that uh, one day, you know, it was before, long before the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, um, Russia became, um, it was even before the Germany collapsed, uh, or I mean like Soviet uh, side of the Germany, Eastern Germany, and joined uh, the Western side. Then, uh, it was meant by Gorbachev that if they walk out of the Warsaw Pact, I don't know <laughs> whether it clears um, or not the picture because not, not everyone remembers probably what was uh, the Warsaw Pact. So the Warsaw Pact was like a counterbalance. Uh, in fact, NATO was counterbalanced too. Uh, the Warsaw Pact, but it was was kind of uh, an agreement of the Soviet domination, I would put it this way, of Eastern Germany and other Eastern European countries. And they, at that point, nobody even discussed uh, the uh, joining of, of the two parts. The only thing was that all the Eastern European countries wanted to run out of the Warsaw Pact. And all of them also at the same time wanted immediately to join NATO. So at that time, at the Soviet concern, the, the Gorbachev concern was that, okay, I will, and that was historic, um, his historic achievement. He said, uh, I would tolerate them going out of the Warsaw Pact if they want so much. But it would be difficult for me to swallow that they immediately go to uh, the, the NATO. And, and in this context, uh, Baker probably said, no, it's not in the cards. I mean, not, nobody even thinks of that. It was too far away uh, a thinking, you know, because Germany was still divided. There was still the wall. And then when the wall crumbled, by the way, it so happened that I was those days uh, having consultations with Eastern German diplomats in Berlin. 
So I was so privileged to witness uh, actually the, the destruction of the wall uh, in Berlin uh, at that moment. So, but after that, no such discussion uh, was even uh, continued because the events went like avalanche, you know, the, the Eastern Europeans uh, took their fate in their hands, so to say, the Soviets tolerated them leaving the, the, the Warsaw Pact, and then they started to knock to NATO, but that was so far-fetched because it takes time, you know, even the most advanced Eastern European countries, politically advanced at that time, uh, Poland, uh, Hungary, and Czech Republic. It took seven to eight years for them to actually get prepared, to actually go through all the procedures which should be done, because it's uh, very easy to boil an egg, but it's uh, impossible to unboil an egg. And so, uh, I mean, the Soviets made them socialist or, or whatever. And then to undo that, to make them again a uh, normal countries, democracies able to join NATO, that took at least seven to eight years for the most advanced. So, at that time, the whole conversation was so far-fetched and so almost like, uh, you know, science fiction <laughs> that um, uh, nobody took those words seriously. So all that is invention. All that is speculation. We, we, did, we, we have not found anything like that. And uh, it's, it's just a mis- interpretation of history which uh, Putin and the regime uses across the board. They go back to Kievan, Kievan Ras, that is 1,000 years ago, and they claim that because it was there was a Kievan Ras, then Russia has a kind of a right to retake, retake Kiev back. When, I mean, if you look at European history, where are we going uh, in, in that case? We're going probably to Charles I in France, you know. And, or maybe getting the Vikings back to England. Exactly. I mean, Italy did not exi exist at that time. I mean, the, 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 the European map was completely different, like... Uh, the professor knows it much better than me. So, I mean, this historic misinterpretation because they are they have nothing of history and just inventions, but they are dangerous because those guys playing them they playing them in internal propaganda, and they playing those things to feed uh, those guys in the West who probably have no idea of any kind of history uh, of Eastern Europe, of Russia, Ukraine, or even Western Europe, unfortunately. But they need an, a pretext to cover their fear. It's fear, fear and greed, greed of some 
uh, international companies of some businessmen who uh, try to do business in Russia like nothing happened, you know? So it's greed and fear. And for them, that's probably useful to have this kind of um, myths, uh, mythos of history. So before we let you go, I want to also ask you about something that you mentioned a little bit earlier and also something that I think is on a lot of people's minds. And, and that is the Russia-China alliance, partnership, relationship, um, call it what you want. Uh, it's uh, There's been a lot of speculation apart from the data that we have in terms of um, China helping uh, uh, helping Russia with sanctions um, evasion and China trying to cooperate with Russia over the years as much as possible when it comes to military transfers and military technology. And we know how advanced that is. Um, but when it comes to uh, common goals, uh, the the shared uh, hate for the West. Um, and when it comes to actual cooperation on the ground, there's been a lot of speculation of whether this can truly be a stable and, um, and deep alliance um, that is forming and we're seeing signs here and there, or it is uh, more of a marriage of convenience um, where Russia needs now any kind of partner um, and uh, in China is helping, but only to the extent that um, it's right now convenient. How do you see this? You've you've looked at um, uh, at China through different lenses over the years. Um, now looking uh, over one and a half years uh, into the full scale invasion and what we know of China's role. What do you make of this relationship? Well, I would not call it marriage even of convenience. It's just a relationship of convenience. And uh, as you said absolutely correctly, the only major kind of driver of this relationship is, as you said, hate to the West. But even that is different because China has a vast economic engagement, West economic interests with the West. And uh, the United States is by far uncomparably even a, a bigger uh, economic partner of, of China, even today, and in foreseeable future than Russia. Uh, so even there uh, is big difference. The big difference to my mind is also in outlook of the West in both uh, countries. Uh, for Putin, anti-Western uh, politics and especially uh, anti-Western propaganda is vital because he cannot compete, cannot present anything to the Russian people in especially in development, in economic sphere. He, he, he was very, very unsuccessful in that. The, his only uh, kind of cheap is um, oil and gas and some other uh, natural resources. While China is different, the Chinese Communist Party kept power and is keeping power, not only by uh, propaganda and uh, intimidation, that's uh, true for, for Putin too, but 
with one very different reason. They present to uh, uh, Chinese people so far quite successfully that they have competitive development, competitive economic structure, economic system. Uh, recently, very recently, only a year, probably two years, they start to uh, suffer from some eco economic problems, but nobody knows whether those problems are long-standing or they are just an episode, like it's natural for any economy. So still today, they claim that their system is better, their economic system, and uh, uh, given their engagement, involvement in world economy, their hate of the West is different. They don't want to destroy the existing system, uh, international system, because it's very comfortable for them and very lucrative uh, in the end for them to use this system for, for uh, their economic development. Uh, they just want corrections. They want to criticize the West. Sometimes they say, oh, we don't agree with the system. We want to overthrow the system. But it's uh, quite unclear what they want actually to do. It's more or less <laughs> these two parties in the United States, which every uh, presidential and other election says, oh, we, we need to, choose, to change everything. It was disaster last four years. But then when they come to power, it turns out that it's more or less the same, you know. In, in so that uh, looks like uh, the Chinese approach. So Russia wants to destroy uh, the system. They want to criticize and probably correct the system. So that's two very different agendas. And uh, uh, Russia and China are historic rivals, if not enemies. The Chinese uh, recently uh, also uh, returned to some of those maps, official, uh, officially returned to those maps where parts of Russian territory, of today's Russian territory, marked like Chinese territory. And that's very small fraction of what they really think should belong to them. Because uh, for the last two centuries, Russia uh, really sliced uh, from uh, the former. I mean, it does not justify any kind of territorial because, you know, these historic uh, narratives, they are completely wrong. I mean, even if they correct uh, factually, but they are wrong as a guide for, uh, for today's uh, policy, uh, as I said, if you European countries come back uh, not centuries ago, but just uh, decades ago, and start to correct the the map according to those, uh, you know, old maps, uh, it would be total and complete disaster. So it does not justify anything. It just, but but it's important to understand the Chinese think that they were unfairly treated by Western countries, which is true. And they were as unfairly and probably even more unfairly treated by Russia, which is also true. Why more? Because 
at the Western countries did not take parts of Chinese territory. They made their various things, I mean, which they thought was interference, but uh, Russians actually took the territory that is diminished China uh, ter uh, territorial possessions. So uh, these are irreconcilable and neither one wants a superpower stronger than itself on its borders. When I came to be foreign minister, I first met with Chinese and I said, guys, let us forget what happened in, in the past. Let us discuss the border fairly according to today's norms and let us have good neighbor relations, good neighbor relations, not alliance against the United States, not anything like from the past, but just good neighbor because we are neighbors and we have to be neighbors. And the response of, of the Chinese was very immediate, actually. And they said, yes, 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 you are right. And then we had a very good relations actually with, with China. And there was Chairman Jiang Zemin, who even sang songs to me uh, in Russian because he went uh, before to, in his youth, to Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg University. So he, he had a, a little uh, command of Russian and he liked uh, the songs of his youth. So uh, China is different. China, uh, China menace and China real challenge to the United States is probably bigger than Russian in economic terms and it should be addressed, but it's blown out of proportion politically. I mean, and, and uh, I think it's a little damaging for, for the United States especially those uh, trade, um, you know, uh, actions, unilateral uh, trade restrictions, which were taken under Trump. I mean, that, that served nothing but exaggerating ten tensions. Uh, so uh, anyway, there is no alliance and there will be, it is impossible. Uh, and any alliance, real alliance between Russia and China what is possible, though, that if uh, Russia continues the war in Ukraine for long, as long as it takes, then it finds itself in a situation when there is, as you mentioned, no other way to go but to China. Because India, which is also uh, trading now uh, times more in Russian oil and gas, but they are far away. And China is just right here, you know. And so in that case, if, if Russia continues to separate itself from Western Europe, which was and still is probably the largest by far economic partner of Russia, then they will go to China, but they will not go to China as equal partners. They will go to China out of desperation when and when Chinese see that they have nowhere else to go, they, I mean Russians in Chinese 
in Chinese mythology, uh, a, there is a northern bear and a southern or Chinese dragon. So uh, if the dragon sees that his uh, opponent, to put it mildly, uh, the bear comes crawling to him in desperation, selling oil, gas, and other national resources because um, otherwise nobody will buy anything. And they, they will, the economy is based on exports, the Russian economy. So of course the dragon, even if he is good willing, I mean, <laughs> the, the most good of uh, dragons would say, of course, come, come. But you will be my vassal. You will be uh, my servant because you have no, no way uh, to go. And that's possible that uh, in in some years down the road, China will just swallow Russia as a weak partner and that dragon will uh, subdue and will probably domesticate the bear if not eaten the bear. So that's the only one scenario when Russia might become a real kind of part of a Chinese strategy. Uh, that could be avoided if, again, the West gives enough powerful weapons right away to Ukraine. Ukraine defeats Russia on its territory, pushes Russia from its territory, and after that, there will be again a possibility of establishing some kind of re-establishing some kind of economic relations between West, between uh, the, the put it, NATO countries or whatever, the Western countries and Russia and give Russia again an alternative to Chinese market only. An alternative like it was always that Russia traded to the West and traded with the East, by far more with the West because it's much more developed countries and all that. So again, we come to the simple truth that the nuclear threat will be diminished only giving Ukraine victory over its territory. The Chinese threat could be uh, diminished only by giving Ukraine weapons to liberate its territory. And it should not be done as long as it takes, because that's what Putin wants. He, he can do it as long as it takes, but it should be done as soon as possible. That's certainly a great way to um, end uh, this podcast. Uh, Minister Andrei Kozirev, thank you so much for joining us. We hope yeah. that you'll join us again soon. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. From me, Yulia Zhoja, and my friend, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter or X at Eastern Front Pod, one word, and sign up for our newsletter included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.